The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, good evening. It's uh, an exciting evening for me. I've been thinking about this for a couple of months now and a chance uh, to speak to our youth group uh, specifically about the issue of evolution. And I'll tell you what the, uh, the genesis of, of this idea came, how it came in my heart. Um, but we thought we would open it up. Um, either there's some interesting youth people here tonight, uh, or the youth group's gotten bigger than ever before, or there's some honored guests. So we're glad all of you are here, and I hope it's going to be helpful uh, this week and again next week. Uh, my desire is uh, to share some biblical convictions at the start but for the most part, the talk is going to be uh, significant scientific problems with evolution, fundamentally why evolution is bad science. I could spend a lot of time on why it's bad theology, why it's unbiblical um, as it is. Uh, but just keep in mind, the Bible is written without evolution in mind at all. Evolution came in last century, uh, two centuries ago in the 1859. Um, and so we have to address it, not just biblically, but also in terms of the wisdom that God's given us. So I've given you a handout. Uh, some of you have thumbed through it, and you're wondering how in the world we're getting through all of this tonight. And the answer is we're not getting through every word of this tonight. I do desire to get through all the main topics of this uh, tonight and talk about some other things next week. But I'm going to have to skip a lot of things. So um, there's a lot of things in here that you can continue your own study with uh, beyond this evening. Now I'm going to begin by saying the Christian life is a battle for the mind. And Satan knows that. Satan understands the significance of our thoughts. Uh, he understands how we think is how we will live. And so there's some key verses on the importance of the battle uh, for the mind. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, Paul says this to the Ephesian Christians. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So in the handout there, I've underlined all of the thinking aspects of that, both the corruption of the thinking of unbelievers and how that corrupt thinking leads to corrupt living, and then the transformation that God works in Christians by their new way of thinking. Also, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 gives us a sense of this battle. There's the battle for the mind and the sense of the battle that we Christians have to do, not just within our own minds and hearts, but battling for the truth. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. 
The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we're ready to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So the idea Paul gives us here is that there are arguments that uh, Satan lodges in people's minds. That's arguments like, like a lawyer makes in a, in a court case, like a closing argument. Not like having an argument but making an argument. And so the idea is that there's truths and concepts. And Paul says that the work of Christians in this context, in this passage, is to demolish satanic arguments, which he calls strongholds. And I consider Darwinism, uh, evolution, to be one of those strongholds. I consider it to be a satanic argument that needs to be demolished. Uh, because it has taken root in our society and in people's minds and hearts. Again, 1 John 5, 19 and 20 talks about Satan's activity in all of this. It says, we know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Satan runs the world. And that includes the universities and the colleges of the world. He runs them. And so when you go off to college, when you um, leave your parents' home and you go off to school, you're going to go into the lair of the devil in many respects. And you've got to be mindful of that. You've got to be ready. The whole world is in the power of the evil one. To continue First John, we know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. So one of the works of Jesus, who it says in Hebrews came to destroy the works of the devil, is to give us understanding of the truth. And so one of the ways we fight Satan's dominating power in this world is to know the truth, and that's in the Bible, biblical truth, uh, so that we may know him who is true, and that is God and Jesus Christ, his son. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then one of the key texts on evolution and natural theology is in Romans chapter 1, 20 through 23. It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So that men are without excuse. What has been made is the creation. The things in what has been made are creatures. Everything in the universe can be put in one of two categories, creator and creature. The creator is one. He is God. Everything else in the universe, physical and spiritual, is a creature made by creation. And that's what Romans says. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly understood, or clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So when you look at creation, you can learn some things about God, His existence and His attributes, His nature. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, etc. So this is a battle for the mind. People can, can be very intelligent. They can be geniuses. But they are, in Romans, considered fools because they deny the existence of God. 
So the Christian life is essentially a battle for the mind. Uh, from the thoughts of the mind come everything else in uh, the human experience. Now, my idea, my concept here at speaking to the youth was to get you ready for moving on from the youth group, moving on from your time with your parents and on into your adult lives. And for many of you, not for all of you, but for many of you, that will mean going to college or to a university somewhere. And the college campus is a war zone, a war zone. Um, that, that right there is my, was my war zone, that's MIT. Um, so that's Killian Court right there. And I spent a lot of time walking across that going to classes. Um, I was converted my junior year at MIT, so I actually went to that godless institution to learn science, and I found Christ there. Uh, God is sovereign and can do amazing things. So don't be filled with fear. Uh, God is at work everywhere, and no matter what Satan claims, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God, and God can rescue a a lost uh, Roman Catholic like me at a university, and he can work in you too. But it's a it's a, a, a war zone. The secular college campus is definitely part of the world that lies in the power of the evil one, the grip of the evil one. The educators in secular universities are extremely zealous for their worldview. They are ardent, and they want to proselytize. They want to win you over to their way of thinking. And you need to go in ready. You need to understand what you're dealing with. You have to prepare for battle. 1 Peter 3.15 says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. So that's an evangelistic context. People, non-Christians, are without hope and without God in the world. You have the hope of eternal life. You believe that the future is infinitely bright based on the gospel. You believe that when you die, you're going to go to an infinitely better place. You're filled with a hope that lost people don't have. And you should be evidently, obviously filled with hope, radiant with hope. And you should be so radiant with hope that people will come and ask you to give a reason for the hope you have. And the giving of a reason there, uh, the Greek word apologia is from where we get the word apologetics, to make a defense. Again, like an argument. You're making an argument in a court of law. You're giving a defense for your hope. You're giving a defense for the Bible. You're giving a defense for what you believe because it's going to be questioned. It's going to be attacked. Now, again, going to my reasons for doing this, uh, I was teaching a Bible for Life class, adult class, down in the uh, fellowship hall on Christ and culture. And I was using this book, uh, Nancy Percy's Total Truth, which I commend. Very good book. A lot of good things in this book. Um, and, and along with that, Michael Kruger's Surviving Religion 101, which I've come across uh, more recently. But uh, Nancy Percy uh, basically gives a testimony of her own um, the, the deconstruction of her Lutheran faith when she went away to college. And uh, she was kind of diving into the secular world that is in the college. And our society is a secular society. And one of the things she argues in Total Truth is that we Christians need to not lay down for secularism. The idea of secularism is that religion, faith, has no right to intrude in the public world. 
uh, into the physical realm of, of politics, business, of law, science, medicine, education, entertainment, sports, commerce, literature, the arts. These realms, all of them can and must operate completely free from religion. And that's the, that's the secular society that we have. And Nancy Percy argues uh, against that and says, we Christians, we need to present a compelling worldview that covers everything in life and not go off in, you know, accept the, the section of life that secularism tells us that we're allowed to go be religious in, but don't bring it into the public square. So that's how she argues. But she gives a testimony of her own experience and he says, you know, we are, based on our own experience, we are losing the minds of the next generation. Because many people in prior generations of Christians have not been able to develop and articulate a consistent Christian worldview that addresses all the issues raised by unbelievers. Young people growing up in churches like ours in the present age are getting swept along by cultural forces they do not have the strength to resist. And she says this about her own life. I had gone to church all my life. My parents made sure of that. Also attended Lutheran elementary school. Over the years, I had memorized hymns, Bible verses, the creeds, and the Lutheran catechism. And I remain immensely grateful for that background. Yet, I had never been trained in apologetics. I'd never been given tools for analyzing ideas or taught to defend Christianity against competing isms. Like so many young people, I had learned my Bible, but I had no clue on how to relate biblical doctrine to the realm of ideas and ideologies. When I first encountered the broader intellectual world beyond the circle of my family and church, I was an easy target. I had no conceptual tools to ward off challenges to my faith. So when I'm reading that as a senior pastor of a local church, I'm like, uh-oh, we got to do something about this. And it's not like we haven't been doing anything, but that we would be able to address some of the worldview challenges you're going to face on the college campus. Now, this evolution talk is, is, is not the only challenge you're going to face when you get to college. You're going to face, frankly, more significant challenges than this one. You're going to be challenged at many levels. I'm not in any way arguing if we get this evolution thing licked, you'll be fine. I'm not saying that at all. I think the gender confusion that's going on, the, the, uh, the uh, LGBTQ stuff you're going to face, uh, the indoctrination they're going to do on some of those things will be a tr- severe challenge beyond just the onslaught of, of temptations uh, toward the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. That's going to be overwhelming enough. But I thought this one thing is going to be there. You're going to meet it. And one of the things you're going to face when you get into the, into the classroom are college professors, and some of you may have seen uh, the movie, God is Not Dead, and so this is a scene from that. So here's this, this dude uh, in his tweed jacket, I guess, waiting for you, all right? And so Nancy Percy talks about that, uh, an ad for uh, Christian Worldview Camp, I think, it said, meet your son's first college professor. He's a Marxist atheist English professor who eats Christian freshmen for lunch. Boy, he looks scary, doesn't he? Look at that guy. Are you ready for this guy? And they use a lot of techniques. One of the techniques they use is ridicule. So one of the things I'm getting at with these two weeks on evolution is to, is to turn the whole ridicule thing around. Naturalistic, materialistic, atheistic evolution is ridiculous. It's worthy of ridicule, and you're going to see that I think, I hope tonight. 
And I'm not saying we should use ridicule. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we should be impervious to being ridiculed on this specific issue. And so uh, she argues it's important for us to teach basic apologetics. Today, basic apologetics has become a crucial skill for sheer survival. She means on the college campus, but just in the adult world that's to come. Without the tools of apologetics, young people can be solidly trained in Bible study and yet still flounder helplessly when they leave home and face the secular world on their own. The tragedy is replayed over and over again as Christian teenagers pack their bags, kiss their parents goodbye, and head off to secular universities only to lose their faith before they graduate, falling prey to the latest intellectual fads. Now listen, evolution's not a latest intellectual fad. It's been around a long time, and it's been corrupting the worldview of generations of people. It's been around a long time, but still, it's a worthy uh, point that Nancy Percy makes. Now Michael Kruger, um, he wrote Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. Um, He faced a crisis right here at UNC Chapel Hill. He goes over there and takes an exciting class called Introduction to the New Testament, and Bart Ehrman was his professor. Didn't know who he was, whatever. Little did he understand, he is the epitome of somebody who eats Christians for lunch. He's been at it for a long time, and uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, sorry, uh, Michael Kruger grew up in a Christian home, been immersed in the evangelical themes of a good church, such as, are you saved, and are you living the Christian life? Uh, but he hadn't had any worldview training and no preparation to fight the assault that Bart Ehrman was given on his conceptions of the Bible. Now, he was able, Kruger was able to study and discover good uh, answers to Ehrman's challenges, uh, but he knew that not all Christian college students have the same happy ending. Many go off to college and make a shipwreck of their faith because they cannot answer many of the intellectual challenges raised on the college campus. Evolution's just one. Now, he's got 16 chapters here addressing a variety of topics. Chapter 8 is entitled, Science Seems Like It Can Explain Everything in the Universe. Do We Really Need to Believe in God? So he addresses it very briefly in that. All right, so that's what kicked me into action here and and hence tonight and next week. So that's what we're we're trying to do. And so we're going to do a little worldview prep. We're going to look at some worldview uh, issues briefly and maybe dig into more worldview next week. I'm not sure yet entirely what we're doing with next week. But basic, uh, the three basic questions of worldview, according to Nancy Percy in Total Truth, these th- three basic questions, cre- creation, fall, redemption. Just get these in your mind, all right? And this is good for evangelism, all right? It's good for us reaching out. Everyone needs to answer these questions, whether they, they think about them or not. So first of all, where did everything come from? What's your answer to that? Ask people that. Where where do you think all this came from? Creation. Secondly, what went wrong? Why are things so messed up? We all know that they're messed up. What do you think went wrong? What's your answer for why everything is so messed up? And thirdly, what can we do about it? How can the world be set right again? So creation, fall, redemption. Now we Christians have the only right answer to those three, all right? And, and it's a compelling worldview. We need to immerse ourselves. But you can take any worldview, atheism, materialistic scientific atheism, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, um, secular Judaism, any, you know, and just line it up and ask, what are your answers to these? 
Marxism, all of them will have to go through the same worldview mill. Now, the issue of creation is the first of those three worldview questions. Where did everything come from? So the question of origins is essential to worldview. Now, the Bible doesn't leave us in any suspense on it, all right? You pick up the Bible, you open to the first page, and you read one of the most famous verses there is in the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you have any sense that he thinks that's important for you to know? Everything comes from that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's vital. It's essential to everything that follows. John's gospel begins similarly. The apostle John picks up on the similar language, but connects it to the person of Jesus Christ, whom he calls the Word. We know that because in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So we know that the Word is Jesus, but this is what John writes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So John, as he begins his gospel account, starts with creation. And he says, everything in the universe was made through Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So he goes from, through him all things were made, to the topic of life. And that's going to be huge in our study tonight. Life is a mystery, complex. But this verse says, in Jesus was life. Biological life, yes but also spiritual life, eternal life. All of that is found in Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Again, John picking up on those Genesis 1 themes, bringing it over to talk about Jesus. So powerful. And then again, the author to Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, says, he also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. That's a powerful statement of of origins and also destination. God is going to roll up the present heavens and earth like a garment and toss them aside and make a new heaven, new earth. That's where we're heading in all of this. So, creation is vital. And evolution, therefore, because of how vital creation is, is a threat. It's a pervasive uh, threat. Now, foundational to our secular world uh, is the idea of naturalistic materialism. And what is that? Well, there's a lot of different ways to define it, but one of the scientific materialists believes that matter and energy, physical matter, physical energy, is all there ever has been, will be, is or ever has been, is or will be in the universe. That's it. And it reduces everything to scientific laws and random chance. That's naturalistic materialism. Matter and energy is everything. Carl Sagan in his famous show, The Cosmos, said it this way, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. That's almost a religious statement. It's almost like a doxology. God, the God who was, is, and is to come. He uses that kind of language uh, because that's his religion. Atheistic, naturalistic materialism is a religion. And that's what he believes. 
Thus, since nature, that is matter and energy, is everything, supernature doesn't exist. Anything beyond that doesn't exist. Supernatural things like God do, that doesn't exist. Now, evolution is everywhere. It's pervasive and dangerous. What is it? How can we define it? Now, in your handout, I've given you a bunch of definitions. I'm not going to read them, but the last one by... Uh, Jonathan Sarfati, I, I, mean, I call, called it out for the slide you see up there. And that slide kind of summarizes it simply. Uh, the basic idea, the framework behind the evolutionist interpretation is naturalism. It is assumed that things made themselves. I mean, stop and think about that. Things made themselves. All right? No divine intervention has happened that God has not revealed to us knowledge about the past. Evolution is a deduction from this assumption. And this is essentially the idea that things made themselves. It includes the unproven idea, uh, these unproven ideas. Nothing gave rise to something at, at the Big Bang. Non-living matter gave rise to life. Single-celled organisms gave rise to many-celled organisms. Invertebrates gave rise to vertebrates. Ape-like creatures gave rise to man, so non-intelligent, amoral matter gave rise to intelligence and morality. That's evolution. Now, what is the basic mechanism of evolution? How does it work? How does that happen? Well, Darwin didn't really know how that happened. When he wrote on the origin of species in 1859, he knew nothing of the groundbreaking work being done at the exact same time by a monk named Gregor Mendel on the issue of genes. He didn't know about it. Genetic, genetics didn't exist yet, but it was coming into being at the same time. Mendel, like I said, was a monk who was studying peas, believe it or not. He was, uh, he was growing peas, and he was crossbreeding peas. And he was studying what would happen if he did this or that. And he didn't even fully understand the significance of genes or genetics. But it was a new science. Um, in subsequent decades, Darwin's idea of evolution, and, and his idea was that behaviors could be passed on to progeny, uh, to descendants, children. So like... An animal stretching its neck to reach for high leaves can grow a long neck in its child, and hence the giraffe kind of thing. But Mendel came along and said, no, 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 it goes down to genetics. And so neo-Darwinism, which is what we're operating with now, combines then the science of genetics with the science of evolution, Darwinism, that's what neo-Darwinism is. No one believes what Darwin first thought, that animals pick up traits and then pass them on to their children uh, permanently. It's not that, it, it's genetics. And so the basic idea of neo-Darwinism is random occurrences which are beneficial genetic mutations that just happen. Mutations are just changes in the genes, but they're beneficial, meaning they're helpful, and that's utterly bizarre because mutations are usually destructive. But random genetic mutations are, that are beneficial chaotically assemble themselves into ever greater complexity, producing attributes and behaviors that increase the probability of a population with those attributes surviving. Helps them survive. 
So that's Darwin, natural selection or survival of the fittest, plus genetics, that's, there you have it. That's the mechanism of neo-Darwinism. Beneficial, random mutations plus survival of the fittest equals evolution. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, as I said, evolution is the accepted dogma of our governmental educational system, public educational system. It's the accepted dogma. If you challenge it, you'll be seen to be an idiot, a fool, something like that, like the emperor's new clothes, something's wrong with you. Um, and so you can't push back, you can't, but it's, it's there. Now, why is it important? Well, because of this one statement. Creation, special creation by an intelligent, powerful being, a God, special creation by God, and naturalistic, materialistic evolution, those two ideas together exhaust all the logical possibilities for the existence of the universe. There's no third option. So either the universe was created by an intelligent designer, God, or it's random naturalistic materialism. Those are your two choices. And if you really don't like the first idea, the second is all you got. And you'll fight for it. And so they do. So that's why this is so important. It ends up being very much like a religion. And they will hold on to it despite the things we're going to share tonight and talk about tonight. They're going to hold on to it in next week. Can it really be 12 past? How is that even possible? So we're going to probably do this one handout for two weeks, and that's all right. I thought that might happen. Evolution, the concept of evolution, is a, is a universal acid. Naturalistic, atheistic evolution destroys every container you put it in. Why is that? Well, because what it says is a naturalistic view of the universe says that if matter and energy is all there is, then what are your ideas? You're having ideas right now. Okay, go ahead. Think of an idea. It's like, what? What idea? All right, think of an animal. Got it? Okay. So you're thinking of an animal right now. All right. What are your thoughts? According to naturalistic, materialistic, atheistic evolution, they're a random collection of chemical processes going on in your physical brain. That's all they are. There's nothing true about your thoughts. Well, how far does that go? It goes to everything. Does that include Darwinism itself? Uh-huh. Darwinism, Darwinism is an illusion, a chemical illusion in your brain. So is Christianity. So is your own existence. So, is, so are all your dreams and hopes and fears. All of them are basically chemical illusions in your brain. Therefore, where do you, how do you end up with morality? How, you, how do you end up with anything? There's, good is an illusion. Evil is an illusion. Everything is an illusion. You see? It's destructive. It's a very, now, very few people carry it out to the logical extension. But that's where it heads. That's how destructive this whole thing is. All right, so let's, with the few minutes we have left tonight, begin looking at the three great scientific problems with evolution. So now I'm going to say why it's bad science. What right do I have to say that? I don't have any more right than you do, okay? 
It's not because I went to MIT that I can say that. My four years at MIT would be laughed at by a lot of these PhD expert types who have multiple higher level degrees and all that. It doesn't mean anything to them. I'm not sitting here because of credentials. But I have been around science enough to know its flaws and I'm not intimidated by intimidators. All right, that much, I've, I've lost that because I've been around some of the most brilliant people in the world. All right, so I would contend not only is evolution very bad theology, but it's also bad science. And why? Problem number one is the origin of life from the naturalistic, atheistic, materialistic evolution point of view. Where did the first living cell come from? Frankly, if you just remember this from these two weeks, that's all you need. They have no answer to that question. No one on earth has an answer to that question. There is no answer to that question from the naturalistic, atheistic, materialistic point of view. Where did the first living cell come from? Secondly, the fossil record. Why doesn't the fossil record show continuous development of species? Why doesn't it vindicate Darwin? It doesn't. It hasn't for, you know, one and a half centuries. So why don't the fossils show evolution? They don't. And then third, uh, what some call irreducible complexity, but I would say what good is half a wing, all right? You know, you're, it takes, let's say it took 100 million years for flight to be evolved. You're halfway done with that journey. Nothing can fly yet, but we're heading there. Whole problems with that. Why are we heading there? How does anyone know where there is? There's no roadmap. There's no plan. There's no blueprint. Why are we heading somewhere? It's a problem. But let's say we're halfway through. Why would that generation of birds, whatever you want to call them, because they're not birds yet, pass on its genetic mutations to its children. How are they helping them to survive? Makes no sense. So those are the three basic problems. Let's walk through them with the time we have left. Let's start with the first problem. And I've got your inverted house of cards. I'm not going to go through into all that, but that's what it is. Have you guys, any of you ever built a house of cards? You probably don't even know what I'm talking about. Take a deck of 52 cards and build a house with it, all right, you know? And so the idea is it's very fragile, it's very, you know, and it can collapse very easily. Well, all right, once you get building a house of cards down, then try building a pyramid of cards upside down, an inverted pyramid. So it gets bigger and bigger as you go higher and higher. And I want to add an extra thing to it. Do it in front of an electric fan, all right? And turn the fan on high so that the first card you put down gets blown away and do it there. That's evolution, all right? That's what's going on here. All right, but that's another story for another time. Let's start with the first, origin of life. This is, without question, the weakest link in the entire evolutionary story. They, ad they admit it, and they keep trying to solve it. And that is the idea that on planet Earth, at one point, at one moment in time, there was not a single living cell. Not one. And then suddenly, poof there was a cell, that thing. Where in the world did that come from? That's a problem for naturalistic, atheistic, materialistic evolution. Now the fundamental precept of biology on this issue is that life comes from life. Life comes from life. Any biologist will tell you that, all right? Except in this case. So we need to get going, we need to get this whole evolution journey started, so we got to go from non-life to life. Don't know how that happened, but look around, obviously it did. 
They have no story for it, no possible explanation how we go from non-life to life, but they say it happened. Now, Darwin knew this was an issue, but he just thought that cells were simple things. They were like water balloons, you know, like uh, there's a membrane and there's this jelly stuff in the middle called protoplasm. Beyond that, what else do we need to know? Much, all right? Uh, But Michael Denton describes this, quote, to grasp the reality of life as it has been revealed by molecular biology, we must magnify a cell a thousand million times until it is 20 kilometers in diameter and resembles a giant airship large enough to cover a great city like London or New York. We're blowing it up until it's as big as New York. What we would then see would be an object of unparalleled complexity and adaptive design. On the surface of the cell, we would see millions of openings, like portholes of a vast spaceship, opening and closing to allow a continual stream of materials to flow in and out. If we were to enter one of these openings, we would find ourselves in a world of supreme technology and bewildering complexity, a complexity beyond our own creative capabilities. A reality which is the very antithesis of chance, which excels in every sense anything produced by the intelligence of man. A single cell. That's how complicated it is. And you can see that that picture picture there. Now I want to share a video that I came across recently, which uh, was done by Harvard University, and just shows the complexity of of what a living cell looks like. It's just got music, there's no words, but it's cool because it's like you're flying inside the cell and you're looking up and left and right and down and there's all kinds of stuff going on. So let's run the video and and I thought that was unbelievably cool. Um, And I thought to myself, I don't know what any of that stuff is. You know, I'm not a molecular biologist, but each of those motions and all that represents something going on inside a single cell. So do you, do you not see the difficulties of this? How you go from a moment ago, nothing's alive on earth, and then suddenly all that is happening. You know, that's just magic is what that is. That's not science. And how, you can, how there could possibly be that kind of, an, uh, of, a, of a reach or an explanation, it, it makes no sense. So for years, the scientific, the atheistic, materialistic, evolutionary scientific community have been looking for a story, just a story of how it could have happened. And if you can come up with one and get it published in an in a official scientific journal, they'll give you $1.35 million. Actually, a different group will now give you $10 million. Look it up, Origin of Life Prize. If you want to make for yourself $10 million, please don't. Uh, but I don't think it can be done. All you have to do is tell a story of how it might have happened, the first living cell. But they have to define life. What is a living cell? What's the difference between that and, let's say, a chunk of granite or something like that? What is a living cell? Well, there are all these things listed. It has to have a cell wall. It has to have information for reproduction. It has to be able to go from information to chemicals. So that's DNA, all that. It's just coded. Uh, It has to be able to eat. It has to be able to reproduce because it's not going to last long, that first living cell. So it needs to have a daughter cell. It needs to be able to heal if it's injured or damaged. It needs to be able to grow. It has to deal well with its environment. 
and it has to be stable, but it has to be able to adapt, hence evolution. So if you can come up with a scenario whereby a cell which can do those nine things came up out of non-living stuff in an instant, you can win all that money. That's just magic. Now, a number of years ago, 1952, uh, Stanley Miller, uh, working with his advisor, uh, Harold Urey, was able to create some amino acids in a beaker by putting them together and shocking them with electricity, but definitely keeping oxygen out because oxygen would have burned it up and say this might have been what the primitive atmosphere was and they can come up with these amino acids. And then it was trumpeted that science has made life in a test tube. The journey from amino acids to a living cell can't even be measured. But here's the thing. They thought they were close. Like, imagine they were like on the one-yard line. They had to get across the, you know, 100 yards down. What has happened with molecular research since that time has moved the finish line not to 200 yards or to a mile away, but to the other side of the, of the galaxy. And every year makes the finish line further away. That's how complex the cell is. And so, no, a couple of amino acids done by Miller and Yuri in a, uh, in a test tube somewhere in 1952, and it hasn't developed since then. Think of all the sciences that, that have developed, digital, electronics, computers, all that stuff since then that have come so far in those 70 years. This science, abiogenesis, how life came from non-life, hasn't moved an inch. And so James Tour, who is uh, really a hero of the faith, this is a messianic Jew, a Jewish man who came to faith in Christ his freshman year in college. You can go on his website. He has an amazing ministry of uh, talking about science and religion. And he will, he will talk to any unbeliever who emails him and share his testimony in the gospel with him. But you have to be an unbeliever and you have to email him. You Christian fanboys don't bother, you know, emailing. He won't answer you. He's a busy man because he has published 700 articles and has 140 uh, patents. He's the leading nanotechnologist in the world, was voted in 2013 the leading scientist in the world. So the guy's brilliant. He said this about abiogenesis, life from non-life. He said abiogenesis cannot ever happen. They, the scientists, are fudging it. But I know they're fudging it. And most people... And even most scientists don't know enough to argue with them. We're not smart enough or trained enough to argue with them. But I do. And I'm calling them out on it. I'm fed up. We should defund all further research in this direction because we're looking for a pot of gold at the end of each rainbow. It's demonstrably a fool's errand. And now it's a gigantic waste of money that could be put to better use. Shut down all the research dollars trying to figure this thing out. It can't be done. And why? Because of the absurd levels of complexity there are in even the most basic cell. Dr. Tour says in a yeast cell... If you look at the yeast cell, the protein interactions that take place in the 3,000 proteins of a, of a yeast cell are impossible to comprehend. Words cannot really do justice to the astronomical odds. The combination of those 3,000 protein interactions with, within a single yeast cell is 10 to the 79 billionth power. 
Now, some of you are math geeks and some of you hate math. All right, I understand. All right, I tend toward the math geek side. Others of you, I am sympathetic to those who don't like math. All right, I remember saying to one very dear to me, I said, math is your friend. And she said, dad, math hates me. All right, I get it. So math was like hunting her down to kill her or something like that. But exponents, 10 to the 1 is 10, 10 to the 2 is 100, etc. It's number of zeros. It's number of zeros. 10 to the 79 billionth power is the biggest number I've ever seen in my life. That's the number of possible interactions among the 3,000 proteins in a single yeast cell. So the odds that that evolved is 1 over 10 to the 79 billionth. Now here's the thing. The science of statistics tells us probability. How likely is it for you to win the lottery? Answer, it isn't likely. All right? Very unlikely. In the science of probability, 10, 1 in 10 to the 50th is considered zero chance. In that science, zero chance. Anything worse than that, zero. Anything close to that, basically zero. This is 1 over 10 to the 79 billionth power. So I did that. That's how geeky your pastor is. You're like, you actually did that? Well, it wasn't that hard. You just copy threes with a comma, and you just keep going until you have a row, and then you copy the row, and, and after a while, you run out of space on the page. So that's 10 to the negative 1,556 power so far. That is so far beyond 10 to the 50, 50th, I can't even measure it, all right? Science, uh, physicists tell us that there are theoretically 10 to the 82nd power atoms in the entire universe. This, that number is much bigger than that. But I, I can't even conceptualize what 10 to the 79 billionth power. That's 79 billion zeros. Who has time for that? But one over that is as zero as you can get. There is no chance that evolved. You understand what that's saying? That cannot happen. That's how complex this is. That's why James Tour says, shut down the research. But he goes beyond that. That's not enough. In addition to just those 3,000 proteins, in that single yeast cell, you still need DNA, the double helix. You still need RNA. You still have to have all the carbohydrates. Remember the carbohydrates all have their own definitions ordered by the way they're hooked up. You can put more information in the carbohydrates that are on the cell surface than you can store in the DNA and RNA combined. And all that information has to come from an original DNA template plus a series of other enzyme cascades. It can't happen. Friends, that's case closed for evolution. If the first living cell couldn't come up, then nothing that follows can happen. Do you, do you see that? So when, when you get to the college campus and they want to ridicule your Christian faith and ridicule your statement, I don't believe in evolution, keep this one thought in mind. Where did the first living cell come from? Give me a good answer to that and then we'll talk. All right? Now next week, God willing, we will look at fossils and we'll look at the development of the wing and other aspects of it. Um, so let me close with prayer. And I'm going to hang out in the Welcome Center. The worship team needs to practice tonight so you guys can mill around for a little while. A little while. And then someone might start playing or do something and you'll get the idea. It might be good to leave the room at some point. But I'll hang out there if anybody wants to ask me any questions or make comments. So let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had to study tonight and the things we looked at.
And Father, I pray that you would just be taking our young people. I thank you for just the gift that the youth are to us and the incredible work that you're doing in their hearts and souls. Help them to have a sense of the certainty of the things they've been taught, that the Bible was written by the same mind that created every living cell, and that that Bible teaches a salvation through faith in Christ, which the wisdom of God alone has worked, and that they would trust in Christ and know the forgiveness of their sins and have confidence that the Bible is true, that the physical world that was created as it is is created for the glory of God and for his pleasure, and that we can live in it as stewards and as shepherds of souls and as witnesses, that we can do all of these things for the praise of his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Good night. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.